This is the What Happened Today podcast, your daily history podcast that tells you what happened on this day in history. Brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network, online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and what happened today, November 14th in 1960, public schools in New Orleans, Louisiana, were officially integrated when three six-year-old girls, Leona Tate, Gela Chan, and Tessie Prevost entered McDonough Number 19 Elementary School, and Ruby Bridges entered William France Elementary School. The story of school desegregation in New Orleans is really a story about the pace of progress. Because at the moment that Leona Tate, Gela Chan, Tessie Prevost, and Ruby Bridges attended school on November 14, 1960, New Orleans schools were integrated. They were African-American children attending formerly all-white schools. And yet it was not so simple. They were four little girls. They were only four African-Americans attending any formerly all-white schools, and no white students were at any black schools. Therefore, the actual fact of integration was almost entirely on paper. And it was not so simple as simply allowing students to show up to integrate a school. The desegregation at New Orleans schools happened six years after the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka that any segregated schools were in fact unconstitutional. Before that, there had been a doctrine known as separate but equal, which actually stemmed from a case in Louisiana in the 1890s called Plessy versus Ferguson in which a very light-skinned black man, Homer Plessy, attempted to board a train and sit in the all-white compartments. The Supreme Court in the 1890s ruled that, in fact, laws that did segregate out things like railroad seating would be legal if there were separate facilities, but they were equal. At the time, this was an obvious problem. No areas set out as colored sections were actually equal. And in the 1890s, there were not schools throughout most of America, and particularly in the South. And so a public school system really developed in most places after segregation was already the fact on the ground throughout the South. So literally, New Orleans had never had integrated public schools. And in that way, it was much like any other Southern city. But New Orleans was always different than most other southern cities in a lot of ways. Its notable population of French-speaking people from the time of its founding by the French, and the fact that in the city of New Orleans itself, it seemed to have an entirely different culture, one based on different things than much of the South, seemed to set it apart. But as school desegregation would show, it was, in fact, a lot like many other southern cities. Most of the South argued for massive resistance to any efforts to integrate schools or achieve any sort of equal rights for African Americans. In 1955, the Civil Rights Movement would start in earnest in December when the Montgomery bus boycott began after Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus while sitting in what became a whites-only section. In other words, by the late 50s, progress was beginning to happen. Change was taking place. But at almost every turn, that change had to be fought for. Although Brown versus Board of Education officially said that all schools must be integrated, it was not necessarily clear. In fact, a second decision had to be issued in 1955, and it famously ordered states to 
integrate all of their schools, quote, with all deliberate speed. The idea of all deliberate speed is not very clear. And most Southern states took the deliberate part rather than the speed part. But they were required by law to integrate their schools, and most chose to do it quite slowly, have a handful of students come in, effectively making sure that they were integrating on paper, but by fact not doing it. And the first big moment when a challenge to integration was put up by local officials and citizens was actually in Little Rock, Arkansas, in September of 1957, when at Little Rock Central High School, nine African-American students were only able to go in to attend what was now their school because President Dwight D. Eisenhower had to call in troops after Governor of Arkansas Orville Faubus had stationed Arkansas National Guard detachments to block the students from coming in. In other words, throughout the South in the late 1950s, people were trying every which way to figure out how to integrate but not really integrate. And in this way, New Orleans was like any other southern city. The Orleans Parish School Board was, perhaps unsurprisingly, dominated by arch segregationists. And they had been fighting various battles over integration for years, but had been able to hold off. The legal counsel of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, A.P. Tarot, had issued a handful of cases against the Orleans Parish School Board, but to no effect before Brown versus Board of Education. But because this was there in 1956, the Orleans Parish School Board was told by a federal judge that it must integrate. However, the Louisiana State Legislature refused, saying that all segregation laws must be maintained, particularly in public schools. And throughout years, nothing was really able to be done until 1960. The judge in the case, J. Skelly Wright, finally had to actually put his own plan in place by 1960. So in other words, by the time the fall semester of 1960 came around and the school year should start, there wasn't really a plan in place by the school board for how to handle things but instead by a federal judge. As the judicial system was trying to enforce integration, the state legislature and Governor Jimmy Davis, who was serving his second term as governor after being out of the state house for 12 years, and someone who had first gained fame as a country and gospel singer, were trying to figure out various ways that would keep integration from happening. None of these were able to actually uphold anything and were mostly struck down by federal courts. And so as November 14th came around, most people knew that, in fact, there would be some effort at desegregation. As planning took place for this, it was clear that not many people would be able to integrate. First of all, any plan put in place had strict guidelines about who actually was eligible. Parents had to meet a certain threshold of income and stability, mostly a judge to keep a lot of African-Americans out. And the children had to be among the best and pass certain intelligence tests. And that's why there were only four first graders that could even make the jump into the white schools. The McDonough three, Leona Tate, Gala Chan, and Tessie Provost would be less famous than Ruby Bridges for a variety of reasons. One, they went in together. They were three going to McDonough number 19 elementary school. Ruby Bridges went alone. And because Ruby Bridges went alone, some of the images of Ruby Bridges going to school became much more famous. She actually had to go with armed guard. U.S. Marshals escorted her to school to first grade. And a famous photo took place of her leaving school with guards all around her. This would later be the inspiration for a 1964 Norman Rockwell painting, The Problem We All Live With. 
where the only face that could be seen was that of Ruby Bridges, because it was from her perspective. You couldn't see the heads. But in the problem we all live with, the view is not that of Ruby Bridges or her guards, but of the people looking at her. And scrawled on the wall are racial slurs and KKK, because the basic fact of New Orleans school desegregation was that there were plenty of people willing to protest for six-year-old girls going to school. They became known as the New Orleans cheerleaders. Mostly, they were white housewives who took signs with them that would protest any sort of desegregation. They yelled at the young girls who were going to school, at the U.S. Marshals who were escorting them, and generally became one of the key parts of the entire ordeal. And although Ruby Bridges and the McDonough Three had a tough time getting to school, Ruby Bridges described her first day as looking like Mardi Gras in New Orleans because it was so loud and people were throwing things. Inside the school, it wasn't very pleasant either. At William France Elementary School, no teachers wanted to actually teach Ruby Bridges except for one, Barbara Henry. Barbara Henry, who was originally from Boston, essentially taught Ruby Bridges alone which was fine, because almost all white students pulled out of the school. Situation was similar at McDonough number 19. By integrating the schools, what actually happened was white students were pulled out by their parents, who were annoyed and alarmed. And although the images that would go around the world and become famous were those of Ruby Bridges and the U.S. Marshals, if someone had been on the ground, what would have been most notable were the cheerleaders, those anonymous, gathered white women who were there to show their anger and obstinance at a six-year-old going to school. New Orleans schools would slowly integrate, although full integration would not officially be achieved until the early 70s. But as with most places throughout the South when integration came, what really happened was that white students just did not attend public schools in the numbers they had before. New Orleans, with its deep Catholic background, already had a significant Catholic school presence. Their ranks swelled. There were also many other small private schools that all of a sudden popped up, and the established ones only got more students. It was a pattern that would play out every time any location tried to integrate. And so really, desegregation of New Orleans schools took forever. Ruby Bridges' family was directly affected in more ways than just having their daughter yelled at. Ruby Bridges' father lost his job. They were banned from the grocery store that they'd usually shopped at. Her parents, sharecropping in Mississippi, were kicked off the land they had lived in almost their entire lives. But there were people supporting the Bridges and making sure Ruby could continue to go to school. Ruby Bridges still lives in New Orleans and has become a civil rights leader, setting up her own foundation. But in some ways, she is still most famous as an icon, that little girl walking to school among U.S. Marshals. The McDonough Three would actually move around schools, although they had gone in together. They would change whether they were in integrated or still segregated schools. But change was coming. And as much as change was coming, and it was ordered by the federal judiciary, people in New Orleans, like in the rest of the South, were going to fight against it. They were going to stand up and show their displeasure. And they were going to try and intimidate anyone who wanted to integrate schools. And that is part of the story as well of New Orleans school desegregation, which is what happened today, November 14th in 1960. That will do it for today's episode. But as always, please check back in tomorrow for a brand new episode because we are a daily history podcast and we do put out a new episode each and every day. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are listening to us on either iTunes or Stitcher, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating and leave a review because by doing that, you can actually help us to get onto charts, which helps us to be found by brand new listeners and generally gets the word out about us. You can also 
Help us out more directly by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Productive Leisure, and becoming one of our patrons. At Patreon, patrons give small monthly contributions to support ongoing creative work, like a podcast network. So if you want to hear more of the What Happened Today podcast or any other Productive Leisure Network podcast, or especially if you want to help us to create brand new podcasts in the future, please go to patreon.com slash Productive Leisure and become one of our patrons today. You can also follow us for updates on everything to do with the Productive Leisure Network on Facebook and Twitter at Prod Leisure. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.